Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for gifts in the body of Christ, for your presence made real among us by your spirit. Thank you, Father, that you are a God of resurrection. You take dead things and you bring them to life. You bring each of us here, Father, with with a world that needs to be changed, a life that needs to be changed. Behaviors, attitudes, thoughts that need to be changed. We're so dead without you, Father. We're so of this world, dying, lost, self-centered. And Father, by the Spirit in us, we can become something much better. By faith, we can be made new again in the likeness of Christ. By a listening and a following of your word, we can represent you to the nations. We can be like you. Your, your nature, your thoughts, your actions can represent themselves in who we are. And we ask you, Father, that that's how you would make us to be. Not just hearers, but doers of your word. Men and women who believe strongly in what we see in the pages of Scripture, that this world is passing, that we are here just for a time so that we may serve the world and as the light that you call us to be. And then we look forward, Father, to the day that we will see you face to face and live with you in eternity. These are the things that keep us focused, Father. Let the word have that effect this morning. As we look at the lives of people from centuries earlier in another place under different circumstances. Nevertheless, Father, help us see ourselves in the text. And may I represent it properly according to your will. In Jesus name. Amen. Judges chapter five again. The song of Deborah. This is a revealing commentary on all the events we've been studying in Israel's victory over the Canaanite king. Now, remember last week we studied the first part of this song. And I said at the time there were three parts. And what's becoming clear as we're studying it and what we'll see again today is that Israel is no longer operating as a single nation under the Lord. If they ever were, if you can ever say there was that time in their history where they had that characteristic, well, it's certainly not there now. Jewish society is fracturing. Men are not leading as they once did. Women are carrying burdens that they ought not carry because the men are not picking up the load. And in general, that phrase we saw at the beginning that we'll see over and over again, in the way Samuel put it, people are doing what was right in their own eyes. Friends, if you have a group of people who start doing what is right in their own eyes, no one will be doing quite the same thing as someone else. It fractures society. And that environment is a poor one if your concern is following the Lord. Obedience is unlikely to exist in any kind of culture in which people do what's right in their own eyes. So as the people of Israel enjoyed the prosperity of the land, they sank into idolatry. And then, as we've seen this pattern over and over again, the Lord would strike Israel with some kind of calamity and he would do it with the intent to wake them from their unrighteousness. And then after some period of time, they would awake and then that would then lead God to restore them in some fashion. And yet each time this pattern turns, the restoration has been a little harder to accomplish and a little less complete. And the resulting idolatry gets a little worse. So we're not really seeing a full turn of the cycle. I want you to turn this circle that I keep using to describe the pattern. I want you to turn it from this direction to more like this direction because they're going down the toilet. They're going down in this spiral. And even though the Lord is continuing to turn them in this cycle, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Chapter five. And this is relatively early in the book of Judges, clearly. So already we're seeing it. And in chapter five, you have Deborah's honest reflection on the way Israel obtained their victory over this Canaanite king on how they actually came to win the battle. And in the first part we studied last week, she highlighted the weakness of Israel 
in contrast to the strength of their enemy. And in that contrast, the Lord brought his overcoming power to win that battle on behalf of Israel. So she takes time at the first part of this song, as we call it, to praise the Lord for his strength in winning a battle for weak Israel against a mighty opponent. As you're going to see now in parts two and three, the people were not really willing to unite in winning this battle. It was the Lord's battle to win because there was no alternative. There was nothing else going to happen. In the end, the victory itself was credited to a woman because Israel's men could not bring it to pass. Because of her bravery, an entire nation is brought into a period of rest again. So we have parts two and three to study today to finish the song. We're going to study part two itself in two sections, starting in chapter five, verse 12. Deborah says, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek came down. Following you, Benjamin, with your peoples, from Machir, commanders came down. And from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepholds? To hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. Part two is focused on how Israel participated in this battle, beginning with how Deborah and Barak got involved in the first place. So look at verse 12. Verse 12, Deborah reminds us that the Lord was the one who dictated the timing of the battle. She speaks about herself here being awoken by a call. The Lord issues this call to Deborah and later to Barak that now is the time to move. The time was right. We already learned in the first part of this song that the Lord won the battle. Now we're learning that he also selected the timing for this battle. The Lord called Deborah to awake and Barak to arise. She's told to awake so that she can sing a song. Now, what he means that by that literally is to prophesy the word of God. Remember, Deborah was a prophetess. She could bring the word of God to the people of Israel. So this idea of sing a song is euphemistic for announce to the people what I am telling you. That is, it is time to go into battle. So her role was to speak the instructions of the Lord on cue. And he gave her the cue. And then Barak. Barak, you remember, was the guy that Deborah called to lead the battle. To go into fight, he was told to arise. The word arise in Hebrew, it means to get up in response to the word of the Lord. In other words, what Deborah is saying is the Lord told me when to speak. And then I passed that to Barak with the command that now is the time to rise to the call of God and go into battle. This is a universal pattern among God's people. It's specific here, of course, but it's not unique to this moment. Every good work of God begins with a call from God by the word of God. And all the people of God are expected to do what God calls us to do by arising to obey what they've learned. And friends, it goes without saying, you cannot obey what you do not know. That is what you have not learned. And so if you do not learn what God has given through his word, well, then there'll be no hope that you will find obedience. But it goes further than that. You can't please the Lord if you hear, but do not obey. The Lord used a woman, if you remember, to issue the call, Deborah, 
And then that call went to a man who had to lead Israel into obedience. So it's always a two step process. In fact, the discipleship conference that you heard mentioned a moment ago, is going to really center on this basic concept that as you explore in all its ramifications is quite deep. The idea that you have to learn before you can obey and you have to act in order to obey. And obedience is the means to pleasing God. A lot of people learn the word of God. Not enough people do it. So as Barak stepped forward to answer Deborah's call, he goes into battle. The next part of what we just read is the recounting of how Barak's step of faith, his action to go into battle, is met by the rest of Israel. His response leads some men in Israel from the surrounding tribes to join him, even as he starts to march north toward the battlefield. Notice in verse 14, we have, in addition to those who we've already expected will join the battle from Zebulun and Naphtali. Remember, the word from Deborah was that he would see men come from Zebulun and Naphtali to help fight the battle. We know about those two. But in addition to those, you have men from Ephraim. Benjamin sends some men. Then it says commanders from Makir. Makir is the name for the western side of Manasseh. So this is the tribe of Manasseh. And then in verse 15, we hear the leaders of Issachar also participates. Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh and Issachar send some number of representatives to join Barak. And if you were to look on a map of where the regions of the various tribes were in the land, you'll notice that geographically these four tribes are more or less on the way to the battlefield. So it's, it's as if as Barak moves from Ephraim, which is where they were, which is where Deborah was, to go to the area where the battle will be, which is largely in the area of Issachar and Naphtali. They move through several of these tribal regions and they pull people in like they're second man into the battle as Barak is moving north. So he picks up support as he travels. The Lord then must have brought these four groups alongside Barak to encourage him, to help him prepare for a battle that he must have had doubts he could win. He must have had concern how he was about to approach such a powerful enemy. When you step out in response to the word of God and you act in faith, as we have already said Barak was doing to a limited extent, perhaps. You can be sure the Lord is going to show himself in unexpected ways to encourage you along that path. I have seen that in my own life time and time again. And we see it in scripture all the time. I don't think Barak was very confident in what he was set out to do. I think he probably needed all the encouragement he could get in light of the task he was given. And as you remember, he was a little hesitant to even go in the first place. He insisted that Deborah be company for him in the battle or he wouldn't go at all. That's not the sign of a man who has a lot of self-confidence. Wouldn't you agree? And yet he moved. In other words, he went. What did God do? Well, in a way, God patted him on the back all the way there. As he's walking those miles of distance between Ephraim and where he eventually had to go to the Jezreel Valley, men would come alongside. And I'll tell you from my own experience in ministry, there is nothing more encouraging as you step out in some act of faith, in some response to God's call. There is nothing more encouraging than having someone else join you in that work. Someone else who says, not only do I agree with what you're doing, I'll put my own effort into the work. I believe in it that much that I join you in the work. You can join works in many ways, financially and in prayer support and the like. And I'm not diminishing those at all. But there's something altogether different when someone says, I'm going to actually physically get involved in the work. It's a tremendous encouragement. That's one of the reasons why I think we take time to go visit those who are on the mission field, even if it's only for a short visit. 
because there is nothing more encouraging to them. And they'll tell you this over and over again. Nothing more encouraging than seeing someone show up and put time into their world, even if just for a little while. I have the privilege to go speak in the Philippines this coming week. And I made a point, as, as I did last time I was there, to reach out to the missionary we support there and ask if we could meet just for a dinner. I could buy him dinner just because that's going to be a moment of encouragement. And that's the thing that God does for us when we need it most. He understands our flesh is weak, and so he works to strengthen it. But pay attention to the order. Don't miss the order. God insisted that Barak move in faith, even as weak as his faith may be, before he brought that extra step of encouragement. Once he was moving, as he's walking north, you can almost imagine it in your mind. He's on a dirt road, maybe by himself, and then some other guy just walks up and says, I heard you're going to battle. I'm here for you. What a great boost. A little more talking and walking, and now they're both a little shaky and wondering, did we make the right choice? A third guy joins. And then a fifth, and who knows how many. The point is, God was just putting his encouragement behind him as he moved in that order. God always requires this order, in my experience. First you hear his word, then you step out in faith, then you receive confirmation. If you are like me sometimes, and you want to reverse a couple of those steps, you would like confirmation first, followed by some reminders and encouragement, and then you can step out in full expectation. Friends, you're going to wait a long time, because you're not going to see it happen that way. Not in my experience. Like God said to Abraham, go to a place... I will show you. He didn't say, here's where you're going. Do you want to go? And that's the pattern of faith. Faith works because it is evidence of God before there is anything physical. It is proof that in our heart we know him before there's something physical to point to. And Barak has taken this step out of faith, we're told in Hebrews 11, and God is affirming him, reaffirming him. And I love this pattern for another reason. Someone has to hear the Lord first, right? It always starts somewhere. Someone is the first to take a step of faith. Someone is the one to make the suggestion we ought to do this or we ought to do that. And God appoints men and women to serve as leaders for that very reason, to get something started among God's people. But then that leader needs encouragement. The Lord has to bring others alongside that work. No one does anything alone. I always like to say Christianity is a team sport, not an individual sport. So for Barak... The Lord used him as the man to start, and then God sent others alongside him to encourage him and move the work forward. But unfortunately, the rest of Israel's society, the rest of Jewish society, was not united in this way. The rest of what we just read highlights the fractured nature of Jewish society in this age. Most of the tribes were incapable of mustering the conviction or the courage to respond to the word of God. And some of them are listed here, but not all. Some aren't listed at all, and we can assume safely that they had nothing to do with the battle either. But look at the ones that are listed, beginning in the end of verse 15. At the end of verse 15, we're told there's this great resolve. You've got to read this with a bit of sarcasm, okay? There's this great resolve of heart among the Reubenites when they heard Barak's adventure was coming. But what they were saying is the ones in Reuben, and Reuben was very close if you look on a map, Reuben is just on the other side of the Jordan to the east of Jordan, right next to Ephraim, which is where this began, where Barak and Deborah were. So they hear early on about this new effort to go defeat the king in the land, to get rid of the oppressor. And they have great resolve of heart. They recognize, ooh, this is great work. This is a good opportunity. Good for you guys. This is awesome. We should have defeated this guy a long time ago. It's about time somebody did something. They heard Deborah had declared this, that the time for victory was now. 
And so they're all for kicking out the Canaanites. What a great idea. But look in verse 16. We learn they remain with their flocks. They don't go into battle. They're content to enjoy their life of leisure rather than to go do the hard work of responding to the call of God. And like Reuben, the tribes of Gad and eastern Manasseh, that's Gilead. Gilead is is really a combination of Gad and eastern Manasseh. They all stay put. The tribe of Dan, it says, they stay on their ships, which means that they continued in their way of life and trading on the sea. And likewise, Asher, which is another coastal tribe, they stay on the seashore, work in the docks. I mean, friends, this is the other side of the coin. You won't get everyone among God's people to answer God's call. That's the reality, the sad reality of human nature. Some, as I like to say, some just won't make the trip. And I'll tell you, as a pastor and a Bible teacher, I see this pattern myself firsthand. I mean, I can emphasize the call of Scripture and I can call people to respond. But some people prefer to live the life they have over the one God is offering. And that preference is always wrong. And you can tell them that till you're blue in the face. Some people will not make the trip, unfortunately. Why? Well, I would argue that the main cause is because there's something in this world they prefer over what is held out for them as reward in the next. Maybe it's the security of a lifestyle they've come to know and and they value. Or maybe it's the fear of the unknown if they answer a call and they have to disrupt their world to do that. I often think a lot of it is just inertia. You know, you've got things set up the way you like. You've got your 9 to 5. You've got your 401k. It's just working for you right now. And I don't want that ship to be upset. And in all cases, it's the same mistake that Jesus described in the gospel when he said in John 12, 25, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Look at verse 18 and see if I'm not right. Look at what Zebulun and Naphtali are saying as they enter the fight. They make the right bargain. Deborah says they despise their lives to the death. And we're willing to die on the high places. The high places just refers to the pagan worship locations of the Canaanites where the battle was going to be fought. This is a battle over who deserves our worship. The true living God of Israel or the pagan gods that the Canaanites are using to pollute the land. Which one do we worship? And these two tribes were willing to leave their lives behind, even to lose their earthly lives, Deborah says, in order to answer the call of God. That's directly related to what Jesus said in John 12. That if you value this world so much that you think you can preserve it, you're making a dying bet because you're betting on the thing that you know is going to pass and you're doing so at the expense of gaining anything in life eternal. In other words, of gaining any reward for having been sacrificially devoted to serving Christ now. That isn't to say, by the way, that we all have to lose everything we own. The scripture does not make it a mandate that all Christians go to the other side of the world and live as paupers in an African country or something, as we might imagine it. That's not the expectation. Your call will be unique to what God's put on your heart. It may look very different from someone else's. But whatever it is, it better be what's motivating your life and directing your decisions and getting you engaged, because if you put it aside, you're making a mistake. Jesus commanded in Luke 9:62, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That's who you want standing with you in ministry when you go out in ministry. You want people who make answering the call of the Lord more important than fitting into the world. 
The Lord wants those people too. And the Lord says people who serve him knowing that this world is in the process of passing away and therefore is not worth preserving are the people who are truly fit for the kingdom. And by the way, in in Luke 9, Jesus is not giving a recipe for how you get into heaven. When he says fit for the kingdom, he means people who reflect it, people who are living up to it. In other words, people whose lifestyle is commensurate with what the kingdom expects. Notice the fractured nature of this culture, though. You have a few in the Israel in Jewish culture who are following Barak. You have at least a couple of groups who are largely strongly backing him and strongly committed. But then you get the rest who are totally indifferent. And their indifference is driven by their value of the current circumstance. They're on the ships. They're on the seashore. They're with the flocks. It's the attraction of modern life, their life at the time, their modern life, that had pulled them away from an interest in answering the call of God. Now you can see the effect of a culture in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's not simply that everyone goes off and sins. I mean, that's a given. It's worse than that, if you will. You have God's people making judgments of when and how to obey God based on their circumstances and their feelings. That's what makes this so dangerous. They're searching their hearts. You notice that phrase from what Deborah wrote about Reuben. They're searching their hearts to know what they should do instead of searching the scriptures. Instead of listening to the word of God, when God spoke to them through a prophetess and said, now is the time, the victory is yours, go up and claim it. They sat around and treated that as an optional piece of advice. They admired it from a distance. They gave it tacit support. Oh, that's a great thing. You should go do that. That's somewhat equivalent to James when he says, when you tell a brother, be filled and go in peace, but do nothing for them. What good is that? It's not exactly the same thing, but it's sort of an example of the same thing where you're talking about giving lip service to doing what God's called you to do instead of actually doing it. God called all of Israel into this battle. Now, he told Deborah and Barak in advance that there'd be two tribes that did the bulk of the work, but that's not because he only wanted two tribes. But when God appointed the military leader to begin the fight, he expected the rest of the nation to follow in like manner. What he got instead was a bunch of shrugged shoulders and then a few who answered. You and I need to guard against that same kind of complacency because it's not hard. It's, it's one promotion away. It's one retirement away. It's whatever gets our attention and directs us away from a call to answer God and towards something that's, as, as they like to say in business, a shiny object that we chase. We have to battle this. It's a battle that will come from time to time because the Lord will often want to disrupt our complacency by putting something new in front of us to see, are you still with me? Are you still following me? And he'll speak to us from his word. Are we still listening? When you hear from the Lord, friends, do not evaluate your choice of what to do in response according to your feelings or your circumstances. Look, I'll tell you right up front, you're rarely going to feel like doing what God calls you to do. I bet there's a lot of days Paul didn't feel like getting stoned or shipwrecked or made to starve or go thirsty or be in jail. Despite what Philippians says, I don't think he was looking forward to those things. I think he knew how to make himself content in the midst of them, but that's not the same thing as saying he looked forward to them. And as far as circumstances are concerned, if you judge whether you can answer God's call based on your circumstances, I've got a secret for you. You'll never be in the right circumstances. Never. I can't think of anyone who's ever said, you know what, of all the career options I have right now, getting away from my job and my income and living off of the hope of donations so I can go live in a world filled with malaria and violence, that's the best career option I have right now. There aren't many I know who've had that experience. 
Think about what Jesus said in Luke. Don't lift your hand from the plow and look back on the farmhouse. That's such a great analogy. He's talking about the one who's gone out into the field to do the hard work of labor. He knows what it requires. He understands it's a long day. And he gets out there and he gets started. And before long, he looks back at the ease and the comfort of that farmhouse. And he begins to have second thoughts about whether he should have even come out here in the first place. Jesus said, if you're distracted by the ease of life, rather than putting your head down and doing the work he's called you to do, he says, you're not fit for the kingdom. He's talking about the mindset of a disciple saved by faith, not by works, but having been saved and now seeking to please the master who bought us. Are we going to serve him with an understanding of what's at stake or are we going to mix our allegiances? One day we serve him, but I still need some time to serve myself, God, you know, and some days this gets a little more than the other. And no, that's not how it works. That gets you to people like Reuben who cheer on the others and then. Go back and watch the flocks. And then Deborah describes the battle in the next section. And we finally get to learn, by the way, how the people of Israel were able to defeat this king that we said was so much more powerful than Israel. There was no hope to beat them. How did they do it? Look at verse 19. The kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder and silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hooves beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. Curse, Morose, said the angel of the Lord. Utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Well, the battle, remember, took place in the Jezreel Valley at a place called Tanakh. Tanakh was an ancient settlement that's about five miles southeast of Megiddo. So if, if you can imagine in your mind this big, wide open valley in the, in the northern part of Israel, Jezreel Valley, it's ringed by a series of mountains or high places. Mount Carmel is there and Megiddo is another one. And this is the valley where the battle is going to take place. And then on the northwest corner of this valley, you have the Kishon River. And it's fed by rainfall as well as springs out of Mount Carmel. So now remember last time we talked about how this was set up. The, the Canaanite army had moved from its headquarters in Hazor, which is sort of central, north central. They had moved far west, all the way to the western edge of Israel, near the Mediterranean Sea, to this Kishon River Valley area, which is on the far western end of this valley, which was a very unexplicable move. There was no military basis for them to do so. But we found out last week that it was confirmation that God's word could be believed because he said in advance they would do this thing that was so unexpected. As that takes place, as the battle begins, verse 19, Deborah says the army, the army of Israel didn't plunder silver. In other words, what she means is the Israelites didn't conquer the cities of the Canaanites by overwhelming them with their might. Traditionally, if you were battling another army, As you met on the field of battle and you conquered them, you would take that battle further. You would run into the cities, the strongholds. You would defeat the cities because that's where you had to eventually win the battle. And then as a result, as a reward, you plunder all the cities and you take the silver and whatever. All right. That's how war was won. Deborah says this battle didn't go that way. This is a shorthand way of Deborah saying this wasn't your ordinary battle. Well, what was it then? Well, verse 20, she says it was won by the stars of heaven. Now, in Scripture, the word star can mean, well, the literal object, like we see it in the sky, a star. But it can also be a symbol. And when the word star is used symbolically in Scripture, it's always consistent from Genesis 
to Revelation, literally, it appears in both those books and in many in between. The word star is a euphemism or a symbol for angel, for angel. So in this context, it would seem that this reference to stars is a symbolic reference to angels, actors that took part in the battle. And in this case, it would seem the angels of God were involved in order to fight the battle. And what did they do? Well, verse 21 talks about torrents of water. These are the torrents of water that came down, presumably down Mount Carmel and flooded the Kishon River Valley. So the valley in which the army of the Canaanites had assembled is suddenly flooded so that the whole valley becomes muddy. The entire river valley is now muddied to the point where guess what happens? What does not work really well in muddy ground? Chariots and the horses that pull them. The main battle weapon of the Canaanites, the thing that gave them superiority in the fight, the thing that defined their strength militarily has just been neutralized by muddy field. And in verse 22, Deborah describes the hooves of the horses beating the ground. But in the original Hebrew, it says this, the horse's heels were broken by prancing in the mud. That's what it's actually saying. I mean, literally, they're being wounded. They're being damaged. They're trying to move so fast in muddy ground that they're breaking ankles or or whatever. Obviously, I know a lot about horses. They're breaking the parts that break when they're down in the mud. Now we get a sense of how Israel was able to win this battle. They were able to triumph over a superior army because once the chariots couldn't move and once the horses were wounded or couldn't get into the battle, now you just have one group of men and another group of men. And the number of Israelites that engaged in this battle was apparently large enough and motivated enough that they could overwhelm the others and kill every single man, as we're told last week. So the faith of these men who entered into battle is rewarded in the end. Keep in mind, they entered thinking they're going to die, or at least fearful of that, I'm assuming. But in the end, the Lord had a better plan. Do you see this pattern in your life? Do you see this pattern in which you step out in faith? You answer the Lord's call. You do it with some trepidation. You're not exactly sure how it's going to work. You're not even sure at times if you made the right choice. God reinforces you. He brings along someone to help encourage your your path so that you get a sense that, yeah, I I am on the right path, but I, I really still don't see how I'm going to succeed in this thing. And then, next thing you know, the Lord shows up. And it doesn't have to be so miraculous that it makes CNN. I'm not saying it has to be, you know, road to Damascus kinds of miracles. It can be small stuff, but stuff you know is the Lord making good on his promise when he called you. Or do you stay on your ships (laughs) or do you stay by your flocks? And if you do that, do you know what you miss out on? Obviously, you're not obeying the Lord. That's a big concern by itself. But do you know what else you miss out on? You don't get to see the miracles. I have a good friend and he works in missions full time. And I remember him telling me something one time when I was visiting with him in Africa and it was always stuck with me. He gave story after story of just these amazing moments in which you would think he would be hopeless And there's no way out. And I don't mean necessarily in danger. Sometimes it was just he had no money. And it was just something where you figure the world's about to end for him there. And then something amazing would happen. And God would just solve the problem. And he would tell these stories with such casual repetition. There's so many of them. Each one of them, any one of them for me, would have been like the highlight of my year. And this is a weekly thing for him. And then he says to me, he said, you know, When people don't step out and do the things God calls them to do and take the kind of risks that God puts on their life, they miss out on the miracles. They're so busy depending on self. But when you put yourself out there and you say, I'm going to take this on faith that God's got a call in my life, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to do it without regard to what the plan is because he's got the plan. You just give God a chance to show up. 
And when he does that, man, those are moments in your walk as a Christian where the whole idea of the kingdom starts to become so real. It's no less real if you don't feel it, but it sure is nice when you can feel it. And you don't get there without the step of faith, in my experience. But Deborah doesn't want us to forget the main theme of this section. So she says, not everyone in Israel responded. Even among Naphtali, some didn't respond. That's the reference there to Moroz. Moroz is just a town in Naphtali, but it was really close to Hazor. Remember Hazor? That's the headquarters for the king of the Canaanites. So can we imagine that there must have been this town in Naphtali, so close to the king, so, so in his shadow, that when the time came for Naphtali to rise up against him, this little town said, no, I don't think we can do that. He could be mad at us if we rise up and don't win. You guys go on without us. That's what I think happened. It's not clear in the text why they didn't go, of course, but they're the ones that get called out here. And in fact, you know, it's the angel of the Lord, which is a reference to Christ. He curses this town for their failure to join in the fight. Once again, it would appear they preferred their life as it was over their choice to serve the Lord. This is the lesson of part two, the contrast. Remember, I said in the three parts of the song, there's a contrast in each part. In this case, the contrast is between the brave of Israel who answered the call and those who wouldn't. The society of Israel in the time of Judges is marked by this fracture, by this split. You have this waning willingness to hear the word of God and to do it. And friends, it's going to get worse as we go further down in history. Here's a people only a few generations removed from the ones who saw the Lord do what he did in the Red Sea. Can you imagine that? A few generations passed from the Red Sea to now, and you got a whole swath of the Jewish society unwilling to lift a finger to follow the Lord anymore. And friends, if you're shaking your finger at them, be careful, because let's take our own advice. Let's be sure that we're ready to respond as well. All right. Part three celebrates the women and particularly the one woman who ultimately brought this battle to its conclusion. Verse 24. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water. She gave him milk in a magnificent bowl. She brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera. She smashed his head and she shattered and pierced his temple between her feet. He bowed. He fell. He lay between her feet. He bowed. He fell where he bowed there. He fell dead. Out of the window she looked and lamented the mother of Sisera through the lattice. Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariots tarry? Her wise princesses would answer her. Indeed, she repeated her words to herself. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work. A spoil of dyed work embroidered. Dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoiler. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, and let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. So what Deborah's doing at the end of this, and she does it with a wry sense of humor, actually. She retraces the steps of Jael. Remember Jael, the one who courageously defeats Sisera and wins the battle. And of course, it was to be this way because Barak had been so hesitant to begin with. The Lord said, because of his hesitance, then that was going to result in a woman being credited with the battle. Here we see the recounting of it. And she begins by saying, this woman is the most blessed of women. You ever heard that phrase somewhere else before? How about in chapter one of Luke in reference to Mary, right? Well, Mary, the mother of Jesus and Jael are connected. And this phrase is a part of that connection in the sense that they are both women chosen by God to perform a role well beyond their station in life. 
And as you look deeply at the two, you think you can see the parallels. Mary was a a humble virgin. Now, of all the people on earth, you might guess, would be the one selected to birth the Messiah. First of all, a virgin was not going to be on the high point of your list. Virgins typically aren't giving birth, right? So that's not going to be on your list of options. And then someone of such lowly station in life, not the likely place you'd start if you're thinking about God selecting someone to bring the Messiah. So she's an unexpected hero in that regard. And then, of course, Jael, this is a woman living in a tent out in the middle of nowhere, not even a Jew. She's the last person you'd expect to win a decisive military victory, and yet that's how God used her. But by God's power, both of these women did miraculous things to free God's people from slavery to a powerful enemy. You have Jael freeing Israel from the Canaanite king, of course. But think about Mary. In what she did, birthing Messiah, she frees God's people from slavery to the enemy. Deborah then moves graphically to recount the way Jael killed Sisera. And, you know, you can't get enough of that story. I'm sorry. It's the third time now we've seen the the details reiterated. Notice, though, the imagery here that's being implied. And you have to look at it carefully to notice it. But it would have jumped out in their culture. They would have seen this right away. Jews would have seen this right away. Notice the imagery of a mighty warrior. But how is he described? He's lying between the feet of. Of the woman. In fact, in, in Hebrew, literally, it says between her feet. Now, this is a, a role reversal intentionally being depicted here, because earlier this man invaded a woman's tent, which in that day normally would have meant only one thing. And instead, he's the one lying between her feet as opposed to the other way around. In other words, it's showing that the tables were turned. And then to finish the song, Deborah creates this third and final contrast in verse 28. She introduces a new imagined character. And I say imagined because she just portrays what might have been for this person. And this person, of course, is Sisera's mother, the mother of the commander of the Canaanite army, the mother of the man that Jael kills. And she imagines, what do you think was going through Sisera's mother's mind after the battle? And she imagines that she's looking out the kitchen window, waiting for her son to come home from battle. And of course, in that image, you see this pitiful woman hoping in vain for the return of a son that's never going to happen because he's died and he's died in a somewhat secretive way. It's not clear that how he died, where he died is ever very widely known. So as Sisera delays in returning and the mother is sitting there fussing about, where's my son? Where's my son? He should be back by now. Where are the hoofbeats of the chariots, etc.? Then her handmaidens start to give her reassuring advice about why he's delaying. And they say things like, oh, he's just dividing the spoil, they say. Dividing all the fine embroidered and dyed cloth and so on and so forth. And then in a particularly coarse detail, she adds, oh, there must have been two maidens for every warrior. And so that's what's delaying him. You know what they mean, of course. What they mean is the raping of the Jewish women is taking Sisera's army longer than expected because there was just too many women to rape. It's like she's saying, oh, I'm sure he just got held up at work. It was just a busy day. A lot more to do than they expected. I mean, that's exactly what they're saying. Now, that comment suggests that Jael's risk of being raped by Sisera was well-founded. And that, as we said last time, she acted in self-defense, ultimately, and could have defended her actions on that basis. Because some strange guy walks into your tent as a woman in that day and age, everyone assumes one thing. And maybe that was exactly what was going to happen. So she was acting in self-defense. So in what she did, she takes a son from his mother, because her son's evil ways dictated it, And as a result, the son's mother is going to suffer with him. Now, the contrast here is really easy to see. You have this poor but triumphant Jael, and she's contrasted with this rich 
but devastated mother. And we can say she's rich because she has handmaidens. After all, she's the mother of the commander of the army. We can assume there was a lot of wealth that came with that position. And so this is a reminder that those who oppose God and God's people will perish no matter what their station in life, no matter how powerful somebody might be today. That's not where the final judgment is going to be made. Don't look around and look at the success people have in this world and start making conclusion about how God sees them. Because, friends, it's so often the opposite, right? Those who love the Lord and his people will triumph. And no one would have predicted that Jael would have gained the upper hand over Sisera's mother, much less she would have gained the upper hand over Sisera himself. But in the end, the tables were turned. Let's remember that as we end today and as we go out considering what we've read in chapter 5. And as you perhaps decide between following the Lord in some specific thing he's put on your heart or perhaps seeking comfort in the world instead. Friends, the world is going to appear better, at least for now, at least to our flesh. One day, though, those tables will be turned. One day, the last will be first. Someday, the least among us will be the greatest. Those who have made the sacrifices necessary to serve God now will be those who see the reward of that in the kingdom. And the trick is, by the time we will see how that math plays out, it's too late to go back and fix it. So take the word of God on its face. Take it and trust it and do what it calls you to do now. And you will not be disappointed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray you give us each courage, wisdom and conviction on matters you put in our heart. I'm confident, Father, that as I spoke from your word this morning without any idea of what you placed on the hearts of those who've heard it. Nevertheless, I'm confident you have been speaking to men and women in this room, as you always do. And I'm confident that someone who has heard this message this morning is rethinking a decision or considering a new option. Perhaps they've wavered. Perhaps they've been reconsidering it because it seemed too hard, too disruptive. Perhaps it was a small thing, a habit, a change in life in some particular corner of our of our ways. Or perhaps it was the biggest kinds of things, Father. Perhaps it was the kind of changes that set us on an entirely new course. But whatever it is, Lord, I pray that what you've said in your word this morning would be something that would influence that heart and that that heart would be obedient to what you've called it to do. And that it's obedience, Father, our our heart's obedience would not be based on a desire to please the world, to seek the approval of men, to fit in or to preserve a lifestyle that's going to pass away one day anyway. But I pray, Father, our hearts would be moved to serve and seek to please you. For, Father, one day we stand before the Lord and we take the judgment that he brings and we will hear how and whether we pleased him. And I pray, Father, each of us will be well prepared for that moment. According to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.